Good morning, everybody. My name is Buck Anderson. If I've not met you, I'm the pastor of leadership development and also work in operations. I am excited to be with you this morning. I'm excited also about the year ahead. Uh, as Blake uh, referenced, and, and certainly as we've discussed before, we got big doings, as my grandmother used to say, coming up this year. We've got a great opportunity to step out in faith. I came in August of 06, and two years later, this place was birthed. And those two years prior to uh, the launch of Southwood, a lot of that came through my desk. I had the privilege of working with uh, the guys that bought the land and renovated the property and built this stage and all the things that came to launching Southwood. And I can tell you that time was exciting. It was a time that, uh, that, that really caused us to grow and think through the many opportunities that we had. Indeed, the good hand of the Lord was upon us. Well, here we are six and a half years later, and we have the same opportunity. We have the opportunity to expand our ministry as the good hand of the Lord seems to continue to reside upon us. We've got a great opportunity for um, spreading the gospel, certainly throughout College Station, but particularly those that live in South College Station. We've got the great opportunity to continue to invest in the lives of believers and see their faith strengthened. We have the great opportunity for Matt Morton and his team to go out and to launch a new site, first at the elementary school and then later, as God will provide through land and a building, our third site. We have great opportunity for our home churches to expand, to raise up new leaders within those home churches and perhaps send them out to start home churches. We have opportunities individually also to minister. Some of you will be contemplating, do I attend the new campus? Those at the Anderson campus are thinking the same thing. How can I be involved this year? Well, having done this before, and as I look out and I see the faces of many who did it with us before in 06, 07, and 08, I can promise you that we will be stretched. I can promise you that our faith will need to be strengthened. For out the course of this year, our congregation will be stretched. Our staff will be stretched. Our ability to manage what will then be three campuses will be stretched. Our ability to serve and disciple ever more people will cause us to be stretched. We'll be stretched financially. We'll be stretched in our faith. Mike Gentry, the chairman of the board, loves to remind us in elder meetings and has so faithfully over the last couple of years that God is calling us to a step of faith. It's not an unthought-through leap of faith, but it is a prompting by God through the elders and through the congregation to take a step of faith. And we are asking Him to be that sure and strong foundation that holds us up as we step. We indeed corporately will in, uh, need, have the need to take that step of faith, and as a church we are being called to do so. But also individually. Let's prepare well for this year individually in our own walks of faith, in the own strengthening of our faith. Some of you this year will enjoy great success. That will be your test. Will I remain humble? Will I share my good fortune? Will I help others along the way? Others will walk a different path. Some will face illness. Some will face death. Some will say, face setback. Some personal heartache. How will we respond corporately and individually to the tests that are coming our way? As a church body, 
and as individuals, our faith will be tested. Our faith needs to be strengthened. If we were going to perhaps ask how we might strengthen our faith, maybe we could call in some experts. We're going to take a look at a couple of experts today in the Word of God, experts in the walk of faith. If we were going to start a a business, maybe we would call in experts of another kind. Maybe if we could call in anyone out there in in the realm of business and needed help with our business model, maybe we'd call, I don't know, how about Donald Trump or Warren Buffett? If we were going to work in our golf game a bit, we may want to call Phil Mickelson or Michelle Wee in. We need experts. You ladies, if you want to work on your wardrobe or work on your husband's wardrobe, maybe the opportunity to bring old Ralph Lauren in or, I have to read these, Giorgio Armani or, watch this one, Donatella Versace. I worked on that. Google is an amazing device, let me tell you. We need experts all the time in life, right? Let's go this morning to the Word of God and, and take a look at a couple of experts. You might think, well, Hebrews 11 is a normal place to go. That's called the Hall of Faith. We're not going there, although those guys and ladies chronicled in that chapter are well worth emulating. There are two individuals found in Matthew's gospel that have caught my attention and frankly have caught my attention for the last 25 or 30 years. They're not found in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, but I believe they possess a unique factor that makes them well worth our time of investigation. For these two individuals are the only two people to whom Jesus Christ ever said, you have great faith. If you read all four Gospels, you'll see these two and these two only ever hear that evaluation from the Lord Himself, your faith is great. Never once to the disciples. In fact, they were on the other end of that spectrum of evaluation, O ye men of little faith. Had faith, it was just weak. It needed to be strengthened. These two individuals will present themselves wonderfully in Matthew's gospel as wonderful experts in the subject of faith. And as we take a look in the year ahead and think about the experts that we could call upon to help us through this idea of great faith, let's walk through the early part of Matthew just to set the background. I think it will do us good to elevate and accentuate ever more the wonder of these two individuals. Matthew's gospel is a powerful book. It is written during tough times, though. The Pharisees were ruling religiously at the time. They were taking over everything when it pertains to approaching God, and they were weighing people down with all these rules. The Old Testament, or the Law of Moses, contained 613 commands. The Pharisees did not find that to be enough, so they added 1,521 more. And it made it difficult to approach God. That's why Jesus would say in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all your weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. The Pharisees had laid upon the backs of the people all these rules that they thought they had to do to approach God, and there was no sense of grace, no sense of freedom. Coupled with that, if you lived in Israel during that time, you had been invaded by another nation, and its soldiers ruled over you. Perhaps coming to a meeting like this, we would have had to walk through a gauntlet of men who may have checked our papers, if you will, ask what we were going to say. Maybe spies among us 
would be here to make sure that we weren't saying anything treasonous against Rome and its power. Also, what you might imagine, racial tension resulted from that toward Gentiles. For these pagan Romans had come in and was ruining the religious freedom that they knew before the Pharisees, and wherever the Jews seemed to turn, he was weighed down by either a military opponent or a religious leader that really wasn't helping. Matthew then writes the most Jewish of all four Gospels. It is full of all sorts of Old Testament allusions, what's called Hebraisms as well, word plays. It is written by a Jew to Jews to convince that Jesus was their Messiah. Or in Matthew's concept, his presentation was of Yeshua ben Yosef HaMasiach, Jesus, the son of Joseph, the Messiah. The long-awaited Messiah promised in the Old Testament, well known of by his Jewish audience, was his goal. And he starts it off not the way we would start our books. He starts it off with a genealogy. But before you check out on Matthew, hang with him, because his goal is to present Jesus as a proper lineaged individual. He's a blue blood. He had to be birthed from the certain correct people, or he doesn't even qualify to be considered as the king of Israel, as the Messiah. Let's use a little Bible study technique, Bible study methods technique, and rearrange this, and look how it looks now. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that's his topic. He then says the son of David the son of Abraham. If you know your Old Testament history, those names are out of order chronologically. Abram comes out of Ur, the Chaldees, and probably around 2166 BC. David reigns about 1000 BC. So Abraham precedes David chronologically some 1166 years, but David is listed first. Why? Because as the Bible unfolds from Abraham into Isaac and then to Jacob, And then Jacob has a bunch of sons, and of those 12, one of those is Judah. And then that branch of the lineage goes down to David. And in 2 Samuel 7, God says, through David will come the king of Israel. Not just through Abraham, not just through Isaac, not just through Jacob, but it had to come through Judah and then to David. And thus, if you're presenting, much like we would our resume or our credentials, these are the credentials of the Christ. And to present him, Matthew is showing he's properly related to the son of David. That will come up in a moment, and so tuck that away as you think about that. But that's crucial to Matthew's gospel. He's going to continue uh, presenting the story of Jesus. He's going to have quite a miraculous birth. His baptism is going to be attended by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's going to be tested in the wilderness. And then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, he's going to issue what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a doozy, okay? In the middle of that, or toward the middle of it, I think is one of the most powerful statements that the Lord will make that really clarifies His position as the Christ and helps us see the uniqueness of His ministry and the uniqueness of what He was saying. Those characteristics will be emulated in the two folks that we see here in just a moment. I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that, of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) All these Pharisees knew all these laws, knew all the commands of the Old Testament, the additional 1,521 more, and you're saying they can't get into heaven? I've got to have more righteousness than they? Who then, as the scripture will say later, 
can be saved. And of course, Jesus is setting himself up for through me, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, all of chapter 5, all of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, Matthew grades it. He evaluates it in these last two verses of the seventh chapter and simply records the result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. If you're not adverse to marking your Bibles up a bit, circle that word authority. It's going going to come into play in the next chapter. It's a crucial sub-theme in the book of Matthew. Like a thread in a tapestry, it's a crucial link to understanding Matthew's presentation, the authority of Jesus Christ. Well, he comes off the Sermon on the Mount. He meets a Jewish leper. He cleanses that leper, sends the leper leper back to meet the priest so that the priest could tell everyone that a leper had been cleansed and and get the word out that way. And then he encounters our first expert. He simply noticed a centurion. He is a Gentile and a presumed enemy of Israel, occupying Palestine under the command of Caesar. He is a professional soldier, most likely has risen from the ranks to that now of a seasoned officer. He's a lifer in the Roman army. Roman army then was divided into legions. Each legion had Each legion had 6,000 men, and to further divide those 6,000 men, there were 60 units of 100. Each unit of 100 was called a century, and the boss of those 100 was a centurion. That's who our fellow is. He is a crucial member of the Roman army and most likely has traveled the world at this time for Rome's glory. He has been sent to a what he would think is a dirty, dusty outpost, in this region that he would know as Philistia, from the land of the Philistines, and most likely he's at the garrison at Capernaum, Capernaum, the village of Nahum of the Old Testament. He's been assigned to that garrison to make sure that there's no civil unrest and to keep the roads open that go through that region north and south. For Israel, among all the things that it is, it is geographically a crucial Lego piece if you will, in the world map. For to come from Asia to the east and Europe to the north and west to go into Africa, you had to go through that land bridge called Israel. About the same size of our state, Vermont, Rome to make sure its commerce continued on those three continents, it was crucial that Israel and its roads were made clear. The Roman centurion is a man's man. He's skilled in the art and savagery of war, he's seen many men die, many at the tip of his own sword, and he lives in a world of rank, order, discipline, and authority. And we see what he has to say in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 and following. Notice, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion comes to him saying, Lord, my servant is paralyzed, lying paralyzed, suffering great pain. And he said, I will come and heal him. Now, if I was writing this gospel, I would have just stopped it right there. Here's a guy that has a problem. He presents it to the Lord. The Lord says, okay, I got you. We'll take care of it. It's what he wanted. 
that is the centurion, to have his servant taken care of. Notice the description, however, that Matthew affords us. The centurion comes entreating the Lord, calls him Lord, which could have been a term for sir, I'll grant. There's a textual problem with the word servant. It could be his son, his literal physical lineage, or perhaps his attendant in the field, one with him who's been in many battles and has helped, helped the centurion take care of the hundred men, write, write letters, make sure that they're equipped properly. He knew, they knew each other well. It does not matter in either case. There's a great deal of empathy for the, this one lying paralyzed, what many scholars will believe some five to ten miles away. The centurion has somehow heard of Christ and has entreated him for healing. The story goes on as the plot thickens a bit. Notice the centurion basically doesn't go with what Jesus had just said. Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. Centurion complicates matters a bit. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Look at this. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now you be that guy for just a moment. And someone very dear to you, your own son, your own daughter, your, own, your best friend, is lying paralyzed, suffering in great pain, and you have come to someone that you believe can remedy their situation. And he says, I will come and heal him. Great faithers do this. Little faithers like me, you know, we're calling a cab. We're getting into the car. Let's go. Because I need this healer to be in the same place where the infirmed lies. Great faithers don't think that way. Great faithers recognize that space and time and distance is nothing to someone with authority like this. Remember, he's a military man. He lives in this world of authority, but he also recognizes that it's just not right for the commander-in-chief to come into the home of what would be equivalent to a captain, like in our army, a man over a hundred people, a woman over a hundred people. It's not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And guess what? It's not even necessary for you to do so. Just say the word, and he'll be healed. And then he explains himself. I love the way he thinks. This is the, the centurion talking. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to this one, come, and he comes. And I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. That's just a routine day for him, telling people what to do. Go take care of that. Do this. Stand here. The the top line on this screen here will help, though. Everything we need to know about him is found in that top line. For I, too, am a man under authority. It's sort of a takes-one-to-no-one approach. He recognizes someone else of authority. He lives in a world of authority, and now he's been trained in that world of authority to recognize others also who live in a world of authority. And notice, it's not just of authority, it's under authority. Authority is granted to people so that they can dispatch information and get things done. He recognizes that Christ's authority comes from someone even over him. This thing goes all the way to the Pentagon, we would say, in our culture. That authority is so strong, and that's what he recognizes. I, too, am a man under authority. Remember the end of Matthew, Matthew 7, where the Sermon on the Mount was evaluated? 
where Jesus was speaking with one as having great authority. This is how the author does it. We're 10 verses later, right? Let me show you others that see the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a key link for great faithers. That's how they think. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who, are, who were following, truly, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Now, off to the side of this little encounter were the disciples. They're in class. They're watching this Roman soldier, probably with disdain. They've probably not had good encounters with guys like this in the past. And this guy is coming in and knocking it out of the park spiritually. He's making a hundred on the test, and I can't prove it. But I wonder if Jesus said, I tell you, truly, truly, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. The weak faither, the great faither. Beautiful picture for us to step back and see that juxtaposition. It's an amazing document, amazing statement that Jesus marveled. In fact, there's a whole lot of marveling going on in the book of Matthew. I think the word occurs five or six times, but only one time, and this is it, does it refer to Jesus. It's the only time recorded in Scripture that Jesus marveled, you know? And and I would have just, I hope there are electives in heaven because I want to go back and run the time machine back and say, can I go to that scene? And I don't know really how to think it through because I know I'll be glorified and all that, but I want to go through it the way I am now, just the way the disciples were, just the way it would have unfolded, and just, just see what it would have been like. And, and, you know, when people marvel, they just don't stand like this and say, oh, that's amazing, I'm marveling at this. This is, you know, A, your mouth has to open a little. Or you're not really marveling. It probably cocks to the side and your eyes do all this stuff. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that expression on the Lord just before he uttered? That he, would, that he had marveled over him. And then the scripture goes on to say, I tell you, Jesus speaking, that many will come from east and west. It's a, a Hebrew refer, reference to Gentiles. Notice a Gentile is coming and now embracing the Lord, seeing him for who he is. And Jesus said to the centurion, go your way, let it be done as you have believed. The servant was healed that very hour. Amazing document. Amazing insight into the authority of Jesus Christ. Remember at the end of Matthew? speaking as one with authority. Here in Matthew 8, I too am a man of authority. The whole book of Matthew, in fact, will hinge on the authority given the Lord Jesus Christ as recorded in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, which reads, Jesus came to them and said, all authority has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples. We love to go and make disciples, but where did the authority come from for him to tell us to do that It comes from his heavenly Father who gives him his authority so that Christ tells us what to do. Rank, order, discipline, authority, it's part of how God works. And we can be certain in our faith that when we are told to do something of the Lord, it comes straight from the high command and that our response is necessary and expected. The great authority of the Lord Jesus Christ is what the centurion teaches us. As the scripture unfolds, things will progress to a showdown in in chapter 12. Uh, The Pharisees had so missed the Lord Jesus that they size up his ministry in Matthew 12 and conclude that he gets his power from Satan. Couldn't have missed him more than that, but the Lord finally sort of washes his hands from them. 
rejects them, begins to speak in parables so that he can hide things from them and reveal them to those that follow him. And then it happened as the Pharisees responded. John the Baptist, the cousin of the Lord Jesus, was captured, imprisoned, beheaded, his head brought on a platter into a party. As all that connected to the Baptist and the Christ were mocked. And it must have rocked the disciples to the core. And this thing had been going pretty well, right? And all of a sudden, our forerunner, our leader, before had Christ had come, the one who had baptized the Lord in the Jordan, is now dead and had died ingloriously, had died in a mocking party. And for the first time only, Jesus Christ will take his men and withdraw from the land of Palestine. He, in fact, will withdraw personally, but he will respond by coming back and then healing all that followed him. He will then feed 5,000. He will walk on the water. He will rebuke the Pharisees for their tradition because it invalidates the Word of God. And then he takes his men on what they most likely would have thought some R&R, a little vacation, a little time to recover from the blow of losing John the Baptist. And they will leave Palestine and head to what we would know as the land of Tyre and Sidon or the land of Lebanon and meet this lady. Simply known in Mark's gospel as a Syrophoenician, but to Matthew, she is a Canaanite. See, the Canaanite word would have had great meaning to those that had first received the document. The disciples well knew who the Canaanites were. She is a descendant of Canaan long ago cursed in Genesis chapter 9. All the way back to Genesis, this lineage had lasted. They were cursed for the grotesque debauchery that they would bring later into the Israeli land. And Noah had cursed them way back then. Her kin included the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Hittites. Her ancient cousins were at Sodom and Gomorrah. She lives in a region on the Mediterranean northwest of Capernaum in this city called Tyre, in a district called Tyre and Sidon, Sidon being another city. Sidon was the firstborn of Canaan, by the way, in Genesis 10. Tyre, by my count, is the second most cursed city in all the Bible, found only a close second to Babylon. It is a Las Vegas, New Orleans kind of place, rich commerce and weary sailors, and it is a blight in God's eyes. And she comes from there. How could anything good come from Rome? How could anything good come from Tyre? Must have been what the guys were thinking. She lives in this ancient land of her people, and she is certainly the least likely individual to have ever done anything insightful when it comes to the person of God. And yet she is going to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that should leave us marveling. Notice as her story unfolds in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus will go away from there, that is this time in which the Baptist had been beheaded, leaving Palestine for the only time in his ministry, and withdraws, I think it's an important word, withdraws into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And she will behold this Canaanite, a Canaanite woman who comes out of that region 
Get your Bible study methods glasses on. Circle some key words in here because the beauty is in the detail. Okay? She began to cry out. So her immediate expression is that there's something serious going on. She didn't just request a meeting. She is crying out her need. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Now, if you lived in the time of Israel during this time, and it would have been the time during which the disciples had been raised, it unfortunately was a time in which women were not treated well at all. Everywhere the Lord Jesus Christ went, He elevated the role of women to their proper place, as Peter would call later the co-heirs of the grace of life, equal members of the deposit known as the image of God as seen in Genesis 1 and 2. But they had been relegated to inferior positions. And this lady sort of takes the cake if you have that mindset, however wrong that mindset is. She's a Canaanite. She's a woman. She has a daughter, and her daughter has a demon. If there's a a spectrum of righteousness, the Pharisees would quickly station themselves over here at the far end of the good side of righteousness. And this lady wouldn't be even on the spectrum. She wouldn't even be considered human hardly. And certainly, the background of the disciples, that would have come into play in this teaching moment that they're about to encounter. Notice how it unfolds. Have mercy on me, O Lord. She calls him Lord just like the centurion calls him. But what does she say next? She knows who this is. Don't know how she knows, but she knows. So you don't use the the phrase son of David unless you know what that means. It's a messianic term. We saw it earlier, remember, in Matthew 1, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's the Messiah. And she didn't have the background, biblically, theologically, the disciples had, which makes her all the more amazing. But she knew who she was dealing with. And she encounters him, and it's this almost comical scene. If you're stepping back from the literature, you see that she's going to be speaking, the disciples are going to be speaking, and the master teacher for the first act is just sort of watching this little ping-pong match, back and forth. The verbs are what are called imperfect. They, they, they don't end. They keep going. Notice he, doesn't, he, Jesus, doesn't answer her a word. And the disciples keep coming to him and kept asking him, Lord, heal her. Help her. No. What do they say? Send her away. The disciples, the little faithers, pretty much got the position, hey man, I'm on vacation here. I'm taking some time off. Ministry is not a part of my vacation. Let's just move ourselves along and send her away, Lord. And the Lord just allows that exchange to continue. She keeps coming. They keep saying, send her away. She keeps coming. They keep saying, send her away. She is shouting out after us, the Scripture says. Then the second act takes on. Jesus speaks finally and says to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's true. To the Jew first and then the Greek. That's the pattern. Okay, We've already seen Gentiles be included in the the previous 8th chapter. So Jesus certainly entertains Gentiles, but he's reminding her that his first priority of business was to go to the Jew, I think he's drawing her out. It's almost like she doesn't know what to say to that. 
Remember, she had been crying out, and now she says, as he, she bows down before him, Lord, help me. You parents know what that's like. She'd so personalized the issue of her daughter that it was now her issue. Help me, Lord, for I cannot do anything in and above myself. Jesus then changes the scene. He answers her and says, It is good not to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Sounds kind of weird to us. He's changing the scene. It's dinner time. Mom, dad, two kids, teenagers over here, and a little baby in a high chair over here, and some dogs underneath the table. It's routine. Happens in lots of homes all the time. And she's saying, he's saying, at that scene, it's improper to take the meal that was intended for the child and give it to dogs. And that's true. But notice what she says. Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Mark's account is even more powerful. He said, his account basically says, Lord, it's where he says, it's not good to take the meal intended for the smallest child and have the tiniest of crumbs fall on the floor so that the tiniest of dogs could eat it. In other words, that crumb's about that big. And she says, can I have that instead of that dog? Because that's good enough for me. Because it comes from your hand, my Lord, O son of David. She recognized the great sufficiency of the Lord, Jesus answered and said, Oh woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. The Canaanite teaches us about sufficiency. He's enough. He's sufficient. He doesn't give us his crumbs, but even if he did, they'd be sufficient. For he baked the bread, if you'll allow. It comes from the loaf that he had prepared. And she recognized the great sufficiency of the Lord's provision as enough for her. A key insight into what great faithers and how they think. Notice this chart. It's really obviously beautifully arranged in Matthew's gospel. You've got the Roman centurion, the Canaanite, both Gentiles, one from Rome, one from Canaan, both loved, both the least likely to ever do anything amazing, one a son or a slave, another a daughter, one paralyzed in great pain, another demonized. The centurion teaches us through his insight about authority. The Canaanite teaches us through her insight about his sufficiency. The Bible gives us great insight into words like faith, words like belief. Hebrew word aman, we get our word amen from this word. It's the word normally translated faith or believe. But still in the New Testament has the same idea. It's the idea of the realization of the strength or ability of the object of faith. I happen to see this stage get built. I've walked on this stage many times. I never think that I'm in any kind of danger walking on this step. I know it's strong and firm and steady. I know the trusses that are underneath it. It will hold me up. I realize that. And then it's dependent upon me to rely upon that object of faith. This is faith 101, I realize, but sometimes we get so complicated and talk about such big things, we fail to realize the basics that the centurion and the Canaanite had insight to, that often the disciples are over on the side sort of scratching their head, saying, who is this man? He's a man of great authority. He is the Christ, the Son of David, who is sufficient for us all. This picture sort of haunts me. 
and yet attracts me. I love it and I hate it. The last 15 or 20 years, I've struggled with vertigo a bit. And man, I can't even look at it sometimes. And unfortunately, it's on that screen in the back of the room too. So if you see me talking over here, you'll know why. I'll get all dizzy. This is the building of what we would know as 30 Rock today in New York City. It's Comcast building now. It used to be the RCA building or the GE building. It's uh, taken from the southeast looking up at Central Park in the back, Upper West Side over here. And these are real iron workers, steel workers. It's staged, obviously, for a newspaper article that was going to come out the next week uh, to attract renters to this building that was being constructed first in 1932. They're on the 69th floor several hundred feet in the air. OSHA is not a dream in the government's eye at any point at this time. There are no thin fishing lines holding them up. In fact, there's not a structure above them. How can they do that? These are immigrants who probably saw a a building go up and just like me going, man, I need to work, but I don't know if I can do that. But guess what? These guys had been on the job since day one. And they saw the firmness of that foundation go into that Manhattan bedrock, tied those superstructures into that, and that building began to come up. And these guys attached every one of those I-beams to those structures. And they were the guys with the big lug nuts working those nuts and bolts in at the end. And they knew that thing wouldn't go in anywhere. Whether it was one floor or 10 or 20 or 69, it did not matter to them This was strong, and it's a beautiful picture of this combination of the strength and sovereignty and authority, if you will, of a building and its sufficiency to hold us up. Their weight is nothing compared to the strength of that building, and that is the God that we serve who also tells us what to do but holds us up as He does it. It is a beautiful picture of the life of faith, and this year, We have opportunities to think about these things. In the year ahead, remember, we all have the capacity to believe. That's not thwarted. It doesn't matter, as we've seen from the Canaanite or the centurion, it doesn't matter of our background. How long we've been a believer, uh, years or or new, uh, woman or man, uh, ethnic background, race, social situation, it does not matter. Faith is a capacity that we all enjoy and will not be thwarted cannot be diminished. But what we've seen is the Lord is looking, and He likes to evaluate for the purpose of progress, for the purpose of of telling us how we're doing and moving us on to proper faith. What do we learn? Great faithers expand their capacity to believe. They do so by recognizing the great authority as they realize and rely upon the great authority of the Lord. Their faith is enhanced. Their muscles increase. Great faithers also realize and rely upon the great sufficiency of the Lord. So as we think about it this week, maybe the centurion, sort of your guy. You need to bolster up that sense of authority of God in your life, the sense of authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, that sense of authority of the Word of God. And a little snap, too, of a a yes, sir might be a proper response. I I love the combination of these two as as the great authority uh, of the Lord uh, as as seen in the life of the uh, centurion is also evidenced by the life of the Canaanite as we see her story uh, unfold. She tells us about sufficiency. She reminds us that he is enough, that his crumb, although he doesn't give it to us, is plenty if we just latch on 
and absorb it and take it into our bodies. Strengthen our faith this year in the year ahead. Father, we thank you for the privilege this year that we do have, the opportunity to stretch our muscles a bit, to have our faith strengthened, to have our faith evaluated both corporately and individually. Help us as a church, Lord, grow strong in our faith. Help us, Lord, in our individual lives, be strong in the trial, strong in the success, that we might be men and women who recognize fully the authority of the Lord Jesus and His great sufficiency. As the song says, Lord, how great Thou art. We love You this morning and thank You. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all have a wonderful week. Be strengthened.